Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast. Here we're joined by experts, strategists and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy here at the IISS. And I'm Yuka Koshino, IISS Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy. We will be your hosts for this episode. Today, we're very excited to welcome Professor Taniguchi Tomohiko to discuss former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo's grand strategy. Professor Taniguchi has had a diverse career in journalism, diplomacy, and academia with experiences spanning different roles in institutions, including Nikkei Business and Ministry of Foreign Affairs. From April 2013 to September 2020, he served as a special advisor to Prime Minister Abe's cabinet and also as a counselor in the cabinet secretariat, contributed to crafting foreign policy speeches for Prime Minister Abe. He is also a prolific author, having written or co-authored more than 10 books on international affairs. Notably, Prime Minister Abe's speeches, published in September 2022. Currently, he's a visiting professor at Takushoku University's Institute of World Studies and serves as senior fellow at the Alliance of the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies, GRIPS. So thank you very much for being here to unpack Mr. Abe's grand strategy. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me in this Victorian gorgeous mansion, Arundel House. Thank you. A very warm welcome to the IISS HQ here in London. Let's start our discussion on thinking about what a diplomatic speechwriter actually is. Nobody doubts that Abe-san was the longest serving prime minister in Japan's constitutional history, that he left many diplomatic legacies and footprints. But Abe-san was also a unique prime minister, not least because of his efforts to broaden the horizon of Japan's diplomacy and protect and nurture Japan's interests. This ambition was often articulated through his speeches, which raises the question of who was writing the manuscripts for his speeches. The term diplomatic speechwriter reminds me more of the White House than Japan's Kante or Nagatacho. And Taniguchi-sensei, this is a point I think you made in your book, Prime Minister Abe's Speeches, where you say that, and I quote, it has been customary for the appropriate person in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to be responsible for the Prime Minister's speeches. Why do you think that the Japanese government set up this new position? And could you tell us a bit more about your journey to becoming a speechwriter for Prime Minister Abe Shinzo? Thank you very much, uh, Robert. You said the Japanese government set up this new position. However, this has not been institutionalized. Immediately after I left uh, the government of Shinzo Abe's, there has been no such position as the uh, prime minister's speech writer focusing on diplomatic and foreign policy areas. It is safe to say that I have been so far the only professionally hired speechwriter from outside of the bureaucracy to serve Japanese Prime Minister uh, since, let's say, uh, the beginning of Japan's constitutional history that dates back to the 19th century. So you may wonder why there has been no such position before me. For a long time after the end of the Second World War, Japan's diplomatic horizon was narrow. It was basically to take care the bilateral relationship between the United States and Japan, with the exception of Prime Minister Kishi Nobusuke, who just happens to be Prime Minister Abe's grandfather, who made a stunning speech in the U.S. Congress. That was the only exception. When Japan succeeded in taking back sovereignty over Okinawan islands, 
which until that time had been the most important diplomatic agenda for Japan, what、uh, ensued after that was a friction after another on trade areas with the United States and with the rest of the world,、uh, EU included. I would say even a flamboyant. And towering, let's say, figure, some, someone like、uh, Nakasone, hesitated in exposing himself to the scrutiny of、um, U.S. Congress men and women, and therefore he did not、uh, grab any opportunity to make a speech in the U.S. Congress. It took a long time for Japan to have no trade friction. Whatsoever with the U.S. and with the EU, Prime Minister Abe was able to focus not on trade investment but on much greater issues. The need is、um, there even for the current Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kishida, to follow the course. But so far, Prime Minister Kishida seems to be struggling, getting more political capital domestically. You've been involved in writing some really important speeches for Abisan. One example that springs to mind is the confluence of the two C's speech to the Indian Parliament in 2007. So you obviously have a sort of feeling for how to articulate important political messages. What was your journey towards this particular type of contribution? I was spending my sabbatical as a journalist in、um, the United States between 2000. Four and five at、uh, Brookings Institution. One day, my fixed line telephone rang, which was from the Foreign Ministry, Tokyo, and the caller was the top diplomat,、uh, someone called Shotaro Yachi Shotaro, who would then become an inaugural head of the National Security Secretariat that、uh, Prime Minister Abe launched. And he asked me if I would be interested in changing my career from、uh, someone who grills members of the government to someone who's being grilled constantly by the members of the press.、Uh, what do you mean? I said we would like you to consider joining the foreign ministry to work as、uh, a press secretary to. Non-Japanese speaking members of the press, and I said yes, even though it was literally out of the blue. I had absolutely no idea whatsoever until that point in my life that I would be、uh, working as a member of the government. So that was、uh, the first major shift in my career, and that coincided with the appointment of someone much, much more flamboyant than. Average foreign ministers, namely Aso Taro, he wanted to articulate himself about、uh, Japanese foreign policies. The fact that I had just joined the foreign ministry matched the appointment of、uh, Foreign Minister Taro very much nicely, and so I ended up、uh, working as Aso Taro's foreign policy speechwriter. And I can't remember how many speeches that I wrote for him. It indicates that. Time was ripe at the time for Japan to be more articulate about what country Japan was like, what kind of values Japan adheres to. There was absolutely no need whatsoever for Japan to come out and say, "This is who I am." Why? Because Japan was the only gaming town. China was much, much poorer. 
and Japan was the towering figure in the entire region of the Asia Pacific. There was no need for you to say when you are so much a visible figure that you are what kind of person. Two thousand four five、uh, was an important period of time when China's economy outperformed、uh, Japan's.、Uh, Chinese GDP was、um, bigger than Japan. It was the time for Tokyo to say, "This is the direction we are following. These are the values that." We take very much seriously. Then I was、um, able to write、uh, those speeches. I thought that must be very much、uh, clearer in、uh, saying to the world that、uh, what Japan was like and what sort of values Japan、uh, values very much highly. And then came Abe Shinzo, and I would say, demand creates supply. Abe Shinzo was such a person. As was very much keen on saying to the world that Japan does this and that, and、uh, he was very much pleased to see the explosive, may I say, reactions that he saw from the floor of the Indian Parliament. Without which, I would not have been able to、uh, continue serving Shinzo Abe as his、uh, foreign policy speechwriter. Thank you very much for sharing your journey on how you became a speechwriter. And former Prime Minister Abe's speeches always captivated an audience with some humorous and memorable phrases, notably "Buy My Abenomics" in his speech at the New York Stock Exchange on September twenty fifth, two thousand thirteen. So, Taniguchi Sensei, what are the key things that you always kept in mind when you were writing a speech for Prime Minister Abe? I immediately insert a、uh, footnote over here because "by my abenomics" was not the phrase that I came up with. It was an idea of my own colleague, who、um, was very much、um, uh, interested and、uh, familiar with all sorts of pop culture, including、uh, movies and baseballs and rock music. The speech that Shinzo Abe Shinzo delivered to the New York Stock Exchange included not only reference. To Gordon Gecko, but also uh, to uh, some of the rock groups and the baseball player New York Yankee Judge, then Homer King.、Uh, so that aside, I always、um, kept in mind that the first five minutes was the most important to grab the minds and hearts of the audience. So. Using the initial part of, let's say, five minutes, the speaker must be able to engage the audience and captivate, if possible, the minds and hearts of the audience. The best and I would say、uh, the most effective way to do that is to earn applause and, if possible, standing ovation. There must be thousands of ways to do that. And I、uh, had to be very much creative、uh, each and every time I was writing for Abe、uh, for different occasions. I was actually、um, putting together materials in order one day for Abe to address the members of the Parliament at the Westminster Parliamentary House. Abe Shinzo was very much keen on doing that、uh, sometime in the future,、uh, to, of course, no avail.
Thank you very much, Professor Taniguchi. So now let's dive deeper into Mr. Abe's foreign policy and diplomatic legacies. So there are various interpretations of former Prime Minister Abe's ground strategy by regions, countries, and also by actors. But your perspective as a special advisor to his cabinet could really help us better understand the different nuances and intent behind his strategy. So Prime Minister Abe conducted economic and security reforms and developed active diplomatic posture to respond to the deteriorating security environment around Japan. And he often referred to this initiative as breaking away from the post-war regime. Taniguchi-sensei, what do you think is the essence of former Prime Minister Abe's grand strategy? And how do you think Mr. Abe perceived the interplay between economy, diplomacy, and security? The interplay between economics and diplomacy and security is something that not many Japanese prime ministers uh, looked very much seriously into because many Japanese prime ministers have come and gone very quickly. The average duration of Japanese premiership must have been less than two years. Abe Shinzo was rather exceptional. And if you serve as prime minister for a long time, budgeting one year's budget, taking stock of its consequences, thinking about the next economic agendas. You always think that you've got deep-rooted challenges and problems, and without doing something about those deep-rooted challenges, you just realize that the future generations of your country cannot be forward-looking, cannot be more risk-friendly rather than risk-averse. And without their bolder uh, challenges, uh, you can't uh, ignite revolutions in productivity and you can't uh, generate more growth. Let's take a look at Japan's budget. The sheer amount of Japan's budget in dollar terms or in uh, pounds terms, whatever you say, is bigger, actually, than the total economy of Saudi Arabia or Turkey, both of which are middle-sized countries. So Japan's budget is bigger than those average middle-sized countries, and yet 70% of the budget is fixed, either for social welfare spending, especially for the elderly care, and subsidies to local municipalities, and uh, Japanese government bond obligations. You can't introduce changes to these three areas. So you're looking only at the rest of 30% of the pie. Yeah, then you, you realize that unless and until you can succeed in making the pie itself bigger, you can't envisage anything about creation for the future foundations, including uh, strengthening of your national security arrangements. Uh, That's what uh, came to Abe Shinzo when he probably had spent two, three years in office. It was the time, actually, when he started to encourage female members of the society almost daily, which is why I sometimes called Mr. Abe, an accidental cheerleader-in-chief in addition to commander-in-chief. So one has to be a cheerleader cheering up the morale of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 
telling them almost every day that if we work harder, we can still grow. And the implication there, of course, is without、uh, growth, you can't grow your military, you can't grow your diplomatic、uh, capital.、Uh, so everything follows. So that's the interplay, the interconnection.、Uh, if you look at Japan's neighborhood, it's a neighborhood that requires higher insurance premium, scarcely anywhere else than the Japanese neighborhood you have. Such precarious environment in which you have Russia, China, and North Korea in between,、uh, none of which has experienced anything akin to open democracy, and every one of which is busy developing nuclear arsenal, including intermediate range missiles, something that neither the United States nor Japan. At the moment, possesses they are openly hostile to Japan and to the U.S. Japan relationship and alliance. It tells you that no nation, neither the United States nor Japan, could tackle these challenges alone by itself. So it leads you to one option, that is to say, you need to strengthen your partnerships. And alliance networks as widely as possible, and that actually led Abe to look at the globe from a very much a holistic way, rather than focusing his attention on only one small region, which brought him to travel to Many many corners in the world. He was the globe-trotting prime minister ever that Japan has had, and he brought forth the agendas that Japan, Australia, India, and the United States must work together. The first day when he took office, the second time, December 2012, he actually published an article in English on the internet-based. Web page、uh, publication project syndicate, and the article's title was "Asia's Democratic Security Diamond."、Uh, if you connect four dots of Hawaii, Darwin, Australia, Yokosuka, Japan, and Kolkata, India, it seems just like a diamond, and that would then be called the Quad. Security arrangement. You mentioned that Mr. Abe was probably one of the first global trotting prime minister, and Prime Minister Abe delivered a number of memorable speeches around the world, and some took on a strategic significance. So, Taniguchi Sensei, which speeches by Mr. Abe were of paramount importance, and why were they so significant? And also, what were the key messages that Abe wanted to get across to the audiences in these speeches? I must reiterate by saying that、um, had he been able to come to London and give a speech to an audience in Westminster, I am certain that it must have been one of the most memorable and important speeches to celebrate the significance of the UK-Japan bilateral relationship. There is no question when it comes to the importance that Shinzo Abe put on among、uh, many speeches. The one that he gave to the U.S. Congress stood、uh, out. 
as the most important. Why? It is because you can't do, once again, anything alone by itself in these precarious environments without cementing your alliance relationship with the United States. Previous generations of the Japanese had extremely mixed emotions about America. They knew as realists that the U.S.-Japan relation and security alliance would continue to be very much important, but they sometimes remember how many civilians and citizens had to lose their lives due to the carpet uh, napalm bombing that uh, the United States exerted upon Japan in the year 1945. And so those were the mixed emotions. And Shinzo Abe represented the first Japanese post-war generation that had a view that the presence of U.S. military would serve as a net benefit for Japan. It was not a deficit, but an asset. So that's something that Shinzo Abe and his generation of the Japanese, including my gen- including myself, uh, started to look at when thinking, when pondering the meaning and significance of the U.S.-Japan Security Alliance. However, the U.S.-Japan Security Alliance was a setup, an arrangement to counterbalance the Soviets' nuclear arsenal. It was deemed to be an institution of the past. The Security Alliance between the United States and Japan was intact but in search of the next purpose. And Abe Shinzo wanted to change the interpretation of the U.S.-Japan Security Alliance from something that served both nations' past history, and he wanted to change it to serve for the purposes that the future world, the U.S.-Japan, Australia and others could and should share, which is the reason why he insisted upon using a phrase called the Alliance for the Future. That phrase did not come from me, from from inside. It was Prime Minister Abe himself that uh, insisted from the beginning that this phrase, the Alliance for the Future, must be used for my speech that I would be giving to the U.S. Congress. He practiced, practiced, and practiced while watching him doing an enormous amount of practices. I thought uh, he was almost like a, an athlete preparing for uh, something uh, like an international competition. It's uh, well known that uh, he made a practice using taped uh, material that I created myself. Uh, in his bedroom uh, with uh, Akie, his wife, aside. Uh, So Mrs. Abe Akie uh, joked to me a number of times that uh, uh, it was easy even for me to memorize the speech because I hear your voice, Taniguchi-san, every day uh, in my bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Abe was very much... Uh, satisfied by what he did to the U.S. Congress. Since that time, very few U.S. broadcasting network televisions broadcast negative legacy memory materials of um, 
the day of infamy that President Roosevelt said on the 7th of December. Indeed, after that speech, President Obama visited uh, Hiroshima. Abe and Obama both uh, visited Pearl Harbor to end the long chapter of history just like this. That was the intent and purpose. China was placed at the centre of Abesan's foreign policy. In his 2006 de facto manifesto, Utsukushi Kunye, Towards a Beautiful Country, he devotes quite a lot of space to thinking about China in this book. His championing of the international rules-based order also had one eye on China. His speech at the 2014 IISS Shangri-La Dialogue, in which he declared, and I quote again, Japan for the rule of law, Asia for the rule of law, and the rule of law for all of us. Similarly prescient, I think, given the recent breaches in international law, seen, for example, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. Initially, amongst allies and partners, many thought Japan was uh, overreacting to the rise uh, of China. And China's rise was seen in a much more benign terms in, in Europe and the, and the US. But now you're seeing many countries following Abisan's lead with their own Indo-Pacific policies and so on. The free and open Indo-Pacific concept, the Quad that we, we've talked about. What do you think Abisan wanted to achieve with his China policy? As you articulated, Robert, there was a difference as regards how to deal with China between Japan and most other members of the G7 countries. Something called Nixon-Kissinger's Cocroft consensus persisted in the United States, whereby a lot of people believed that more engagement would lead China to become a more responsible stakeholder in the international regime. And that has proven not to be the case. Here in the UK, David Cameron, when he was Prime Minister, extended what was then called the reddest red carpet to the visiting leader of China, Xi Jinping. Such was a stark difference between what many people in Japan perceived about Japan, about China, and uh, attitudes observed elsewhere. Which is to say that the first priority for Abe was to be articulate on what kind of challenges Japan is faced with and what kind of challenges that China poses to the international community. Already, when he came back in office, the second time, December 2012, the Philippines were struggling almost daily with China around some of the territorial islands, uh, some of the territorial spaces of the Philippines, to no avail because China paid absolutely no attention to whatever the Philippines would say. And since 2008, it became almost a daily phenomenon that China send official vessels, either Coast Guard or fishery agencies, boats to the Senkaku areas. So the Chinese ambition was very much paramount and for Shinzo Abe it uh, took no further description but that was not the case in the rest of the world. So Abe spent many hours with uh, Donald J. Trump when he took office about where the challenges lie. Mr. Trump must have seen North Korea as the most important challenge. 
But wait a second, Mr. President, and that's what、uh, Abe said.、Uh, short-term North Korea's challenge is something that you can't、uh, ignore, and we can't ignore. But long-term, China would be China is the most important challenge for all of us. However, the kind of challenges that China poses does not fit nicely into the political election calendars. We all have Japan, the UK, the United States as democratic nations. President of the United States, one president of the United States may start his administration with a、uh, harsher stance towards China, but it tends to melt down or melt、uh, away softly, and that's the pattern. If so,、uh, Abe had to continue to say. To all the leaders in the democratic nations, that given the challenge, the given the long-term nature of the challenge that China poses, we must stick around. We must gather forces. We must never ever forget the kind of challenges that China poses by constantly working together. By constantly speaking with each other, by increasing opportunities and occasions where the leaders of these nations meet and exchange views and speak with each other, the Quad arrangement was one of those institutions that was designed to serve those purposes. Sometimes one reads that Abisam was sort of anti-China, but from what you're saying, Taniguchi Sensei, I think the picture is a bit more nuanced than that with regard to his approach. Indeed, no Japanese prime minister can do anything without、uh, thinking very much hard every day about what Japanese companies and what Japanese expatriate family members are doing in China. Take an example of、um, auto manufacturer Honda. That's the company that grew because、uh, of the success that、uh, they had in the U.S. consumer market. One easily assumes for Honda, the U.S. market still is more important than any other market in the world. That's not the case. Honda manufactures more cars in China now. If that's the case for Honda, it's obviously the case for all other auto manufacturers, and even Mitsubishi Heavy Industry, that's one of the most important defense contractors in Japan. They can't do business;、uh, they can't、uh, make both ends meet without、uh, taking Chinese market seriously. So, it、uh, leads all the Japanese political leaders to be very much serious about safeguarding the interests. Of、uh, China, given the proximity that Japan has with China, the balancing act is very much、uh, difficult, and the long-term serving、uh, leader, such as、uh, Abe, could do a slightly better job because、uh, then the Japanese Prime Minister could assume more political power, and power can be interpreted into convincing power, peace through force. Something that、uh, Richard Nixon said、uh, applies here to this、uh, context as well. And indeed, Xi Jinping, who started the, his relationship with、uh, Abe in a very much awkward way, ended up、uh, becoming relatively friendly to 
the Japanese Prime Minister, Prime Minister Abe. Uh, so Abe epitomized the fact that only through force you could achieve better balance and even friendly relationship with the Chinese leader. And what about other bits of Asia, for example, ASEAN and India? How did they respond to Abe San's quite uniquely active foreign policy in the region? ASEAN, I must say, is increasingly losing its mantra of unity. There are two kinds of ASEAN, one very much in the orbit of China and another distancing from that orbit. There are two kinds of ASEAN, but the stronger posture that Abe posed vis-à-vis China was extremely welcomed, uh, notably by two nations, the Philippines and Vietnam. And Singapore, always clever, was very much aware why Shinzo Abe was doing that. And when it comes to India, one must remember how traumatic an experience uh, that was for India, the experience that uh, India was defeated badly by China in 1962. It was uh, Prime Minister Abe who came to India and showed a full amount of uh, respect to the uh, Indian people, the Indian tradition and Indian culture. While he was delivering the speech to the Indian parliament, this is something that I learned very recently, Uh, some members of the Indian parliament actually uh, had tears in their eyes. And the speech that he delivered is still being talked about by pundits and members of the parliament in India. Abe's still being remembered as someone able to stand firm to the challenges that China poses. In terms of his legacy then, what extent do you think that Abe-san's influence will be reflected in Japan's foreign and defence policy going forward? Already some of those legacies have been losing their appeal, if I may say, among some of the Japanese politicians. And Prime Minister Kishida uses the term free and open international order instead of free and open Indo-Pacific. From FOIP to FOIO, I don't know, but this FOIO does not have any regional implication. It applies to everywhere very much in a handy way. I would imagine even the Chinese would say, ah, this is a good idea, free and open international order serves us well. Look at uh, some of the prejudices that the United States exerts upon us by imposing trade uh, restrictions. Let's make the international order more free and open. That's what the Chinese might say. So I'm a bit disappointed by the fact that uh, the Japanese government under Kishida is referring more to this free and open international order and less to the international uh, free and open Indo-Pacific. The uh, initial uh, motivation must have been that the Japanese wanted to get engaged more in the Ukraine situation, and Ukraine being a land power rather than a sea power, and faces uh, no uh, Indo-Pacific oceanic uh, seascape. Some of the Japanese government members 
must have come up with this new phrase of free and open international order. For Abe, FOIP and QUAD were all about China, were all about the long game that Japan, Australia, India, the United States had to continue to get engaged. Thank you very much, Taniguchi-sensei, for really helping us understand what these key speeches mean and what the former prime minister tried to achieve in his grand strategy. And of course, we took note of your concerns around the use of FOIO or FOIO rather than FOIP in this current administration. We're now at the very end of the podcast. So we always ask two Japan Memo questions to our guests. Let me start from the first one. Do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan? I've got actually five books that I came up with. Number one, The Thames and I, authored by the current emperor when he was a young crown prince and spent、uh, his formative years at Oxford. And this has been translated into English by Sir Hugh Kotatsi, the late ambassador of the UK to Japan. And he was a scholar diplomat in the truest sense of the word. And this is a vivid memoir, many senses, many, many parts、uh, that showed a sense of humor. So, anyone interested in、uh, who is Japanese、um, emperor or king, whatever you call it,、uh, this book is the one that I should strongly recommend that you read. Second and third and fourth、uh, and fifth. Well, in many ways,、um, recollections and memoirs and autobiographies, one of which is Japanese Journeys, and it's、um, a book written by Jeffrey Bonus, who created and launched、uh, Japanese language and literature departments, first at Sheffield and then Oxford University. And it tells you a lot of things about what Japanese post war growth. A recollection not only of one person's journey, but also the journey that Japan's post war period had uh, uh, experienced. A Tokyo Romance, written by Ian Buruma, one of the most proficient, prolific writers. Many view him as an academic and champion, a hero even, but he spent Crucially formative years in Japan of all places, and by so doing, he is a living eyewitness of what the sort of underground culture of Japan was like in the 1960s and in the 1970s. I belong to that old generation of the Japanese. It was almost about my own experiences. I would urge you to pay a look at Ian Buruma's. A Tokyo Romance. There was a British writer called Christopher Ross, and I don't know what else Christopher Ross penned, but one of the books he authored is called Mishima's Sword. If you look at、uh, the jacket, you might、uh, get confused if、uh, the author is talking about Mishima's word. But it's actually Mishima's sword. It is a journey, once again, of a single individual, Christopher Ross, to see who he was like. He was confused with his、uh, sexual、uh, identity, and so was 
the world-renowned author Mishima Yukio, which draw this British man to Japan, and he once again went through all kinds of underground cultural experiences. So it was like going through a labyrinth of Tokyo culture. It ended up with a, a stunning experience that he had in front of a building, rather famous building at the Shibuya crossings called Tokyo 109. It was very much a memorable ending. In between, I encourage you to take a look at probably the best autobiography ever written by any Japanese, the autobiography of Yukichi Fukuzawa, or Fukuzawa Yukichi, the founder of Keio University, but uh, he was a great educator, enlightenment uh, scholar, without whose uh, influences many things in Japan's uh, Meiji era could not have happened. And it's um, readable, filled with lots and lots of humorous anecdotes. Once again, he tells you a lot of things about what the transition was like between the feudal Edo era and more enlightened, modernizing uh, Japan of the late 19th century. Thank you for generously recommending those five books. I'm also a Keio graduate, so I do have Kuzawa Yukichi Sensei's book in my bookshelf. And we're just in the process of putting together the end of this year's book list. So we will add these five recommendations to that and send it to our listeners. So our second question is, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Japan is a cheap place to go to these days. It's no longer costly for you to make a journey to Japan. Devastatingly so, <laughs> because it's so cheap. It comes uh, with um, great benefit, of course. If you ask any Australian and see whether he or she has visited Japan, the next question you must ask him or her is how many times? Because seven out of ten Australians who say that they've been to Japan have been to Japan more than three times. It's good for Japan's tourism industry, and uh, without tourism, Japanese uh, economies in the provincial areas, regional areas, could not um, prosper. So that's number one. Number two, Japan has no friends. That's what uh, people um, were taught by, interestingly, more by uh, German politicians than by anyone else. Because Germany did a lot of things from day one after the Second World War to recreate friendly relations with all kinds of neighbors. But Japan did very little effort in doing that, to which I have responded saying that, wait a second, with the exception of one or two nations in the region, if you ask Singaporeans, Indonesians, Malaysians, the Filipinos and Vietnamese, can you trust Japan? The answer overwhelmingly is yes. The approval ratings, if uh, there is something like that for Japan in Indonesia, it's as high as 95%. Those two nations, China and many cases South Korea, which is changing rapidly, have taught the young generations the seeds of dislike, sometimes even hatred towards the Japanese, but that's been rather exception. 
But seeing is believing, I would say, that uh, more people should come, should visit Japan than to see through their eyes what the society was like. Something that uh, troubles me very much almost daily is this tremendous number of elderly citizens. Impossible for you to walk any streets, any cities without uh, looking at those frail elderly citizens. But you must look at that phenomenon to be curious about what kind of attempts that this country is doing. Some may succeed, but others should uh, fail. And so this is an experiment laboratory uh, that you should look at because of the percentage of the elderly citizens in the entire population is growing very fast. Something has to be done to change the social contract by which it means that you must uh, decrease the amount of social welfare provision to the elderly and change that to benefit more the future generations. How this challenge is being met, whether this ends with a success, is something that is worth looking at because most of the developed nations will face sooner rather than later the similar situation. The rise in inbound tourism that you mentioned is obviously partly driven by the very, certainly for us, favourable yen exchange rate. That was one of, I think, Abisan's successes for Abenomics during his time in, in office. Inbound tourism rose very strongly during this period. And I, I see in the data today that inbound tourism for the most recent month is now back at pre-COVID levels, which is good that more people can enjoy the wonders that Japan has to offer. I'm afraid, this, though, that this brings us to the end of our very rich and wide-ranging conversation with Taniguchi-sensei. I just wanted to say one of the things that struck me and that I will take away from what you said of the many things that you said, was about when you make a speech, that the first five minutes are absolutely critical. So how many of us have made speeches where we haven't really thought about that? So to try and get the attention of audiences in the first five minutes and then try to earn some applause is obviously the key to a good speech. So thank you so much, Taniguchi-sensei, and thank you to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, we urge you to subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. We're also eager to hear your thoughts on the episode. And for more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Programme and by the IISS on our website, which is www.iiss.org. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find Robert at, at Robert Allen Ward and me at, at Yuka Koshino. Thanks again and see you next time.